Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content director at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the book of Deuteronomy, and here the guys will be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 5 through 8. We at Theopolis want to wish you all a very Merry Christmas, and we hope that you are finding much joy and peace and comfort during this Christmas season. We are nearing the tail end of our fundraising for the year of 2023, and we could really use your help to keep going as an organization. There are a bunch of ways to do that. If you'd like to partner with us in our work and become a Theopolis partner, that comes along with some perks, including a lengthy email from Peter Lightheart every Friday. That email goes into what he's reading, what he's studying, what he's thinking about, what he's working on, and there are other perks as well. But if you can't give it that amount at this time, consider maybe becoming a monthly partner at the $10 or $15 level. As if all of our podcast listeners did that, that would be a huge boost to us as an organization. It would really help us out to get the projects done that we want to get done. And also consider being a subscriber to the Theopolis app. That app is full of thousands of pieces of content that we're adding to all the time, which can be with you as near as your phone is. It's been a real blessing to so many people. And so if you can't financially partner with us at this time, becoming a member over on the Theopolis app is a great way to support us as well. So to give to our work, there's a link down there in the show notes, or you can head to our website, theopolisinstitute.com give, and it lays out right there for you all the ways that you can partner with us in our work. And we thank you so very much. With that, we want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this conversation and have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Jeff Myers, and Alistair Roberts discussing Deuteronomy chapter 22. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, James B. John. Brian Motes is recording and ensuring that everything will be edited and smoothed out for you, our listening audience. Uh, Jeff Myers may be in and out uh, during the course of the podcast. Uh, He's a wild card today. We'll see if he shows up. Uh, We are coming to the tail end of a section of Deuteronomy uh, that uh, deals with the sixth word, thou shalt not murder. And uh, we're going to be making a transition, perhaps, if we get so far, uh, into the next section of Deuteronomy. As I've said repeatedly, ad nauseum, uh, Deuteronomy uh, has a long section that's divided up according to the 10 words. The 10 words are given in chapter 5, and then from chapter 6 to about chapter 26, you have a set of laws uh, uh, dealing with each one of the 10 words in order. And we've been dealing with the sixth word section that began in chapter 19, begins in chapter 19 with the laws concerning cities of refuge, deals with uh, rules about warfare. Uh, and we're coming to the end of that section in chapter 22 that deals with a number of a variety of different uh, a variety of different permutations of that commandment. If that's true, then the question is where does that section end? And uh, I have been operating on the view that uh, the section on the sixth word ends in verse 8. Verse 8 says, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring blood guilt or bloods on your house if anyone falls from it. Several reasons for thinking that that's the conclusion to this whole section. Uh, one is that it's it uses the word blood, it's a plural, bloods, which is the form of the word that's translated as blood guilt here and elsewhere in the uh, in Deuteronomy, but it's the it's the uh, uh, the tenth use of that word 
in this section that is from uh, from chapter 19, which deal with the cities of refuge uh, until 22.8, you have 10 uses of the, the word blood, which is kind of a neat numerical conclusion. And then the word blood isn't used again until chapter 27. So you go another five chapters before the word blood again. So the concern with blood is uh, a recurring theme in, in chapters 19.1 through 22.8, and then it kind of drops out. So that suggests the 22.8 is kind of the conclusion to this section. The blood guild or the bloods come on the house if anyone falls from the roof. Uh, and so you have a dead body on uh, that has fallen that is in danger of, here it's not defilement, but it's blood guilt that's brought on the house. That links back to the beginning of chapter 21, where the corpse is found fallen in the open country, fallen in a field in the land. Uh, the word is translated as lying in 21.1, but that's the same word for fall in 22.8. So you have another verbal link that takes you back to the beginning section. You also have, it seems to, uh, just in terms of the uh, uh, subject matter, uh, especially with verse 13, if a man takes a wife and goes into her and then turns against her and charges her with shameful deeds, publicly defames her and so on, uh, charges that she was not a virgin when they married, that's in 22.13. That seems clearly to move into a new phase and seems to be clearly uh, dealing with the questions of with issues of the uh, uh, of the of the seventh word instead of the sixth word. Now we're dealing with thou shalt not commit adultery, and uh, that that can, seems to continue on for a, another couple of chapters. But that leaves uh, verses nine through twelve. It's kind of maybe transitional. Maybe uh, these forbidden mixtures that are uh, listed in verses nine through eleven, perhaps they have something to do with thou shalt not murder. I'm more inclined to see those forbidden mixtures as linked with the seventh word and adultery. Uh, and uh, one textual link that suggests that is the uh, reference in verse 12. Verse 12 of chapter 22 is linked up with the forbidden mixtures rules. You're not supposed to wear a garment of mixed wool and linen together, and then the very next verse, you shall put tassels at the four corners of your garment. So verse 12 seems to be part of that set of rules uh, that begins in verse 9. But verse 12 is linked to chapter 30 by a reference to the wings of a person's robe. So there's a structural suggestion that verses 9 through 12 go with what follows rather than what precedes it. So all that makes me think that uh, verse 8 is a cutoff. Uh, that does raise some questions about, uh, about these laws. If verse 8 is the last rule in the sixth word section, it makes sense that that verse 8 is part of that. Uh, because that's dealing with bloodshed. But how is uh, verse 5 a sixth word rule? Uh, a woman shall not wear a man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing. How does that pertain to the sixth rule? Uh, and then verses 6 and 7 about uh, taking eggs or young from a nest, leaving the bird, we can see that that's linked up with preservation of life. That has That seems to have more connection with the sixth word. But still we have some puzzles in the verses that we'll talk about today, verses 5 through five through seven and how those are sixth word, uh, how those are concerned with the sixth word applications of the sixth word. On the other side, we have the puzzle of how these forbidden mixtures link with the command against adultery. If, if the dividing point again is verse eight, then uh, you have forbidden mixtures of seed. You have forbidden uh, mixtures of animals. When you're plowing, you have forbidden mixtures of materials. When you're wearing clothing, how do those things link up with what follows uh, in the seventh word section. So um, 
we'll have to puzzle over some of those things and uh, think about how these uh, these rules link up with the larger concerns of the uh, of these sections of Deuteronomy. But that that gives us something to something to start with at least, uh, and maybe something to dispute. And we have touched on the question of when the sixth word section ends. Uh, I'm saying verse eight. Uh, anyone want to take an alternative view? I think verse eight is the final verse of that section. James, you're going to make it unanimous. I am. Yeah. I mean, I think it's worth noting, isn't it, that these uh, laws, when you get these situations where the law doesn't instantly kind of fit within what we perceive to be its section, those are to some extent the interesting cases, aren't they? If you just kind of, if Deuteronomy was such that it was just absolutely clear, we've gone from this commandment to the next commandment and you know all the murder stuff is together all the adultery stuff is together etc then in a sense the structure doesn't really add anything it doesn't kind of um encourage any deeper reflection on what's going on and on the interrelation between the the kind of um various commandments and and so um yeah I, i'm keen to sort of um try and press into this a bit further yeah, I think that makes sense to me too. The uh, the cutoff at the end of verse eight. I think on, on your point, James, I think that's one of the uh, one of the values of recognizing structural patterns in the Bible. I mean, sometimes it's a it's a matter of uh, trying to get the feel for a narrative or how uh, a section fits together. But sometimes you have you can have a chiastic structure, for example, where corresponding sections of the chiam just don't seem to fit very well. Uh, and that's those are the interesting cases because if everything else fits very neatly, then uh, something that doesn't seem to fit stands out and is, I think, an invitation to further meditation. Or um, one of the another kind of example you have a we've frequently talked about the uh, the seven day pattern that you have at the end of Exodus. Well, not the end of Exodus, but Exodus twenty five to thirty one, which is the uh, section that deals with the tabernacle. You have seven speeches of God which end with the a reiteration of the Sabbath commandment. Uh, so there's clearly a, a creation structure going on in that section of Exodus. And some of the pieces, the seventh piece, fit very neatly, but then there are some pieces that don't seem to fit at all. But so much of it does that you start, you're invited to, to meditate more, more deeply on how the, how the things are fitting together and, and how one section uh, of Exodus is actually somehow related to or out growing out of uh, what was said in the creation account. I think we definitely had that experience in our last discussion with the beginning of chapter 22, where read in light of the sixth commandment, it clearly becomes a reflection upon what it means to um, be your brother's keeper, to care about your brother's welfare. And also it can be read in correspondence with the son that's rebellious and calling back the sinner from his ways in order that he might be spared. In these cases, the reading that we have is deeply informed by the structure and by the situation of the text. If it were a couple of chapters later and among the um, laws concerning stealing and property, it would be read very differently. And that whole aspect of it would not have been in play. I wonder, I mean, I'd be, I'd be intrigued to know what you think about this, whether you think there's any mileage to to it or not as a, a kind of 
explanation of what might be going on in verse five. So, I mean, I'm looking at a few translations and it seems to me that they give the impression that the the command a woman so I, I have here in the ESV, a woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. And it sounds then very symmetrical, but I think that that's slightly misleading in in that the text doesn't seem that symmetrical to me. So kind of um, the man is not to put on, uh, where are we here? Simlat Isha. So, you know, that's very clearly the garment of a woman. But the inverse of that in, in the first, you know, the corresponding part of that for the man isn't just like Simlat Ish, you know, a man's garment. It, it doesn't have the word, the verb to wear either. It, it's sort of something like, you know, there shall not be um, male stuff on a woman. It's like Kli Gever, like, uh, um, I don't know how best to translate Kli. It's, it's like a, uh, it can be all sorts of things, weapons, uh, just kind of stuff often, like material um, thing. It's kind of the material counterpart to Davar. So like a word, a thing, a matter, um, but it's the the more concrete form of that. And um, if that does have to do with weapons um, and warfare and so on, then I wonder if there aren't to be these armaments on, on a on a woman in, 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 I mean, we could recall the idea that the, um, the goats not to be, um, boiled in its mother's milk, that which is meant to be associated with its life is not to be a source of death. And I, I wonder if kind of what's being prohibited here is, is that same sort of inappropriateness or so a woman who is the source of life, you know, Eve, um, Harvard's, um, descendants, you know, aren't to be, associated with war and and death i mean that reads a fair bit into the verse but i I wonder if there's something to it yeah i think that's exactly right some of you may know of uh pastor don stone who was pca pastor in allentown pennsylvania uh and is now actually at cornerstone in uh, carbondale illinois and he's retired but he was one of the drivers the main drivers of this uh overture that went to the General Assembly in 1996, um, some years ago, and continued to kind of come up, but it always it always died. But the argument, well, the, the purpose of the uh, overture was to basically have the uh, Presbyterian Church in America make it clear that we did not believe uh, and would not put up with Uh, having the federal government or the state government, for that matter, either through selective service or through uh, pressure to volunteer, uh, have our women enlist in the army and participate in in uh, uh, in military affairs. Um, There's there's a long rationale for this that's quite good. And and a lot of it is based on this passage um, and that this is mainly about. Uh, military uh, equipment, military uh, gear, uh, weapons, armor, and and things like that. Um, And it it makes a lot of sense also then that this is included in the Sixth Commandment section because it's about who should be 
uh, permitted to protect and guard uh, a family, a nation with uh, with lethal force, men, not women. I think it also fits well with the commandment that follows, which would, um, it's in part, it could be seen as um, protecting animals from being wiped out as species. But there's also, as Rabbi David Foreman comments upon, the way that this is using the maternal instinct of the mother against her, using the materna- maternal instinct of the mother to stay with her her eggs and to protect her young, to kill her. And so that protective instinct, that maternal instinct, needs to be honored. And the way that you handle life and death, in particular in relationship with women and their relationship with their young, whether it's boiling the kid in its mother's milk, whether it's sending women out to fight your wars, or whether it is using the maternal instinct to kill a creature, uh, all of those are illegitimate. That maternal instinct is to be honoured and to be protected and it ensured that it is not um, corrupted or exploited. Yeah, that's good. Uh, the connection with the um, connection with verse five, I think, is really helpful. To, with the boiling the kid in the mother's milk and with the following verse, I think you said this, James, but just to make sure that it gets said in case you didn't, I'm not sure you did. So you have you have Kali, which is um, yeah weapons in a lot of cases, but also the word Ish is not used. You have Isha, the woman, but you don't have Ish. It's uh, Geber, which is uh, connotation of a male strength, victory. It's related to the 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 word for uh, mighty man, which is the variation of the same root. So uh, even the word for man suggests something more than just your uh, just a male, uh, but suggests that there's a the specific case that's in view is uh, is military uh, rather than just common dress. But I, want to, I wonder if we we can infer from this in any way to questions about male and female dress. Do you think that uh, does does the verse have a logic that would apply to kind of daily distinctions? I'm, I'm thinking of uh, Ivan Illich's book Gender, where he talks about in in uh, traditional cultures. Uh, male and female are distinguished in every way at a glance. Uh, they wear different kinds of clothing. Uh, they even have different kind. They have different ways of holding themselves. They have different ways of walking. Uh, there's just a there's a visible difference that's uh, goes beyond the you know physical difference, the anatomical difference between male and female. But uh, male and female are distinguished visually as uh, as a binary within the culture. Does, is that is that a fair uh, implication of this, or do you think that goes beyond what the passage is talking about? Maybe you could uh, offer a, a logic like this: that you have, let's say, it's about uh, military gear, and a woman is not to wear military gear. Uh, you still have the man not putting on the woman's clothing. That seems to be a more, a more general reference, not just to yeah, just it's it's as as James said at the beginning, it's clothing yourself with a woman's robe or or garment. So that's a more general thing. So you could you could make the make the point from that direction, or you can make the point if it's primarily military context. The first clause seems to be uh, that still indicates some fundamental differences between the roles of men and women within a society. That is visibly evident that men are wearing the military gear and women are not wearing military gear, and uh, so 
that specific zone where you have a distinction in dress, maybe you could reason to a more general distinction of dress that would be, again, visible distinctions within a, within a society that uh, rather than, I mean, this is Illich's language, that um, men and women have become indistinguishable in all kinds of ways. The only thing that distinguishes male and female now is anatomical. That's the result of what he describes as the regime of sex, the blurring of uh, sexual differences uh, that we have in modern societies. And he attributes a lot of that to the shifts in the the economic role of the home and the the division between the home and the workplace that occurs at the time of the Industrial Revolution. You have a reordering of sexual relations that is more in keeping with that kind of economic structure. So uh, th- this seems at least plausibly, it, it seems plausible to me that this is instituting a kind of gender regime, to use Illich's terminology, rather than a regime of sex. Human, men, male and female are not just distinguished by their anatomy, but distinguished in all these other cultural ways. They're culturally variable, but they're just visually and uh, empirically distinguishable. That certainly seems to be um, part of what Paul's working with in 1 Corinthians 11, where from the natural clothing of the that emerges from the body, as in hair and hairstyles, um, to head coverings, there is a distinction made between men and women that works for both. There's not just the, we talk a lot about that passage as if it were about head covering for women, but there are also restrictions upon male um, dress and comportment as well. The man should not, um, that long hair is um, a shame, and then there's also the covering of the head that should not occur. And so for Paul's understanding, um, we can see that perhaps as cultural, but as an expression of a deeper natural distinction that should be maintained between the sexes, that in every single society, this will be done differently, but there is a dressing up of the fact of of biological difference, of um, sexual difference, as a gender difference. And in the same way as every human society has language, every human society has dress, and every human society in dress and language in other ways will um, express that fundamental difference. And where that difference is lost, um, there's something of the dignity of the human being that is threatened. And within this context, it's very clear that um, where there is a loss of the distinction between um, male and female, there is something of um, a danger of the um, distinction between life and death, for instance, being distorted. Could think back to the way that um, chapter 20 talked about the importance of the person who has just come into a new marriage or who has just come into a new inheritance or has just planted a vineyard that he should be able to enjoy those things of life and that the things of life should not be swallowed up by the things of death. That distinction between male and female and the distinction between who wears and goes out the clothing of war and goes out to war um, is part of that broader distinction that needs to be maintained within the society. And as Lewis pointed out, wars are ugly when women fight. And I think there's something of that distinction that when lost within a society, deeper realities in the society start to go awry. Yes, I mean, 
when you get this kind of verse where there's a slight asymmetry, um, if if we do take it to say something like, you know, there shall not be weapons of war on a woman and a man shall not wear a woman's um, garment, you can sort of go in two directions. So there's a temptation, I think, to say, well, we're taking the first bit um, to do with a woman going to war. We're taking it functionally. So let's read um, a man shall not put on a woman's cloak functionally as well. And let's say a man shall not sort of take on a woman's mantle, do her roles, be functionally like a, a woman. And so kind of clothing has almost nothing to do with any of it. Or you can kind of do that the the other way around. You can say, well, the second half of the verse is clearly about clothing, so we're going to have to do the first like it as well. But reading each in light of the other seems a, a sensible way to go, to say that it's about clothing um, and, by extension, about roles, because clothing and roles very often go together. And it's clearly no coincidence that in our day and age as the kind of things that men and women wear and the way they appear are getting more um, similar and more collapsed that roles uh, are becoming more collapsed at, at the same time that that's clearly not an accident i wonder if we can make one further uh push one further application um the kali uh the word for gear or uh, the clothing of the man it's it's not really clothing it's referring to accoutrements or gear or uh appurtenances weapons i don't know if it's used of the priestly garments themselves but it it is a very common word used of the furnishings of the tabernacle so all of the furniture of the tabernacle comes under that heading uh it's that term is used to describe it in general that term is used to describe the um the various implements that the priests use in order to carry out the sacrificial rites, uh, their knives and their snuffers and their forks and things that they use to to uh, butcher sacrificial animals and to take care of the lampstand and so on and so forth. Those are all Kali. So I wonder if we could uh, make a further application that there's uh, perhaps a, a priestly dimension to this uh, and a woman putting on a man's uh, vestments, the vestments of a uh, Geber, the vestments of a uh, of a mighty man priest is being forbidden. What do you think about that? I wouldn't see it as the first um, reference of the text, but it certainly seems to me to be a valid development of its meaning. Um, certainly within scripture, there's more of a sense of the priest as a something of a military figure. They are the in some ways the standing army of doorkeepers around the house of the Lord. They're the ones who are set apart for their ministry, often through acts of violent defense of the holiness of the Lord and the sanctity of the people of God, whether that's the Levites striking their brothers or Phineas um, striking the unfaithful Simeonite and um, the woman he's with and stopping the plague. In these cases, there is a sense of the priest as a guardian of the people who is playing some military-like role, and where there is a confusion of male and female in that area, I think a lot of other things start to unravel. And I think part of the problem that we have in these questions is we've lost sight of the more military um, 
flavor of um, a guardian of the people of God. We don't think of the people of God primarily as a group to be um, upheld and protected from those who would prey upon them. And so the pastor becomes something more like uh, um, a therapist or um, the pastor can be a sort of motivational speaker or um, some sort of scholar giving insight. The idea of the pastor as a guardian, um, I think, shows part of the importance of that Adamic role of guarding the garden and the way that things can go awry when there's a confusion of gender in that particular area. That's an interesting point, Alistair. It, it reminds me, I think I'm right in saying this, that in um, Genesis 49, in Jacob's condemnation of um, Simeon and Levi, they're referred to as clay hamas, so kind of the same word for whatever we're translating it as, gear, weapons um, of violence. And that kind of violent um, behaviour, I guess, is, I think this is a point you might have made, actually, Alistair, is, is kind of redeemed insofar as the Levites do then take action, like Phinehas, like Moses calling the Levites to strap, strap on their swords and, and to go through the uh, camp slaying the idolaters. And so... It, it does feel like there's a kind of um, a textual allusion to that to that role of the Levite as, as being that kind of forceful protector rather than the initial incident, the Genesis 35 incident, which which didn't feel like protection. It, it really left Dina in a, in a worse and more vulnerable state than she was beforehand, actually. Yeah, that's, uh, and you can add the obvious... Um daily practice of the priests and Levites is uh, is all involved in killing. They're, they spend their days killing things and butchering things. And uh, if, if the logic behind verse 5 is, and particularly the first part of verse 5, is that a separation of life and death, if that's the un, kind of the underlying motif, then uh, that would seem to apply also to priestly ministry, at least priestly ministry as, as it's done in the Old Covenant because it's so much, uh, uh, so much uh, involved with the uh, with the killing of killing of things, killing animals. Alistair referred to the to verses six and seven, which have to do with uh, coming across a bird's nest. The rule is that you can, if you come across a bird's nest, you can uh, take a uh, take an uh, eggs or the young, but you can't take eggs or the eggs and young, and also take the hen. Uh, you have to leave the hen and let let her go. Um, so, uh, Alistair, your point uh, from uh, David Foreman was that the the uh, mother hen is there at the nest because she's caring for her young. You can't take advantage of that maternal instinct in order to take her. That was the argument that he was making. Yes, and that's a more general thing. Um, that there's a more general import of it, in part indicated by the allusion back to the fifth commandment. Um, that it may go well with you and that you may live long. Um, that is the promise that is attached to the commandment to honor your father and mother. And so the same maternal instinct that you know from your mother, your own mother is something that you need to recognize in other women, not even the least of the creatures, the small sparrow in her nest. You honor that maternal instinct because you honor your own mother. And in that honoring, you are promised a long life in the land. And it's interesting also, he observes the 
way that the same um, turn of phrase is used back in Genesis chapter 32, as Jacob is approaching Esau, he says, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children or upon the children, um, the same turn of phrase used here. Yeah, so the that would suggest that you got a you've got a fifth word connection that would suggest that uh, the fifth word is not just honor your mother, but honor mothers and even mother animal mothers. That's part of what what's implied there. You seem also to have a maybe a Sabbath illusion. You take the young, you take the eggs, but you let the mother go. Uh, that's send her away, which is the terminology that's used for the manumitted slave back in Deuteronomy fifteen. The, the mother is released uh, and not taken captive. So uh, there's a there's a kind of Sabbath Sabbath rule going on here too. In that respect, it could be compared to the protection of the land from overuse. Um, the Sabbath year that's given to the land to lie fallow is also um, a protection from animals from being um, killed to or preyed upon to extinction. Um, that you're always letting some go. You're not, um, you're not taking all the edges of the animal, as it were, um, of the species. As you would take the edge of your, leave the edge of your fields for gleaning, so you leave the animals go. Yeah, and I think uh, it would link back to chapter twenty of Deuteronomy, also where you have uh, the rule of warfare right at the end of chapter twenty, which prohibits Israel from destroying fruit trees. They can eat the fruit of the tree during their siege. They're not allowed to destroy the fruit trees for siege works, and so there's a preservation of the the mother tree, as it were, uh, when they they take the young or the eggs. That military connection, I think, is uh, perhaps indicated by the way that this uh, these verses are uh, are described. The scenario in view here is that you you come across a hen, a mother bird with a nest. It's this is not a domesticated bird that you're raising and taking care of this is you're coming across the nest uh, in a tree or on the ground that's not that's not in your hen house that's uh, out in the wild and the the phrase come come across can means befall sometimes it means to meet in battle it's fairly commonly used to be meet in battle and the idea of a nest is an often an image of a fortress uh, you have uh, uh, prophetic passages that talk about a, a great ruler who is has established his nest in the heights so that it's uh, invulnerable, it's impregnable by opponents. I think it's in uh, Habakkuk. One of the woes of Habakkuk is spoken against those who use their wealth to establish nests on high and uh, isolate themselves up on a high place away from the community as a protective place. So th there's a connotations, uh, the terminology, some of the terminology has a connotation of a military setting. And then you have the analogy with the, the fruit trees that I already mentioned in chapter 20, and that perhaps suggests some kind of rule of warfare about preserving, uh, if you think of the city as the mother, preserving the, the mother who's on the nest of the city, the mother who's in the nest of the fortress, take the young, take the eggs. You can you fight against the eggs, but you preserve the city in some way. Obviously, if that's if you have that kind of military application, it's not universal for Israel because they do destroy the mother city of certain people. The Jer Jericho's, uh, Jericho's destroyed and some other cities. Uh, but there may be a military kind of connotation also. 
on that, I wonder whether we're supposed to be reading it in some sort of correspondence or at least conversation with the um, chapter 20 verses 13 and 14, the sparing of the women and the little ones and the livestock, etc., but taking the rest as plunder. How do we relate that? Because it seems that there is something of a contrast that you are leaving both the women and the children. And here you can take the children and kill, presumably kill them, um, but you have to leave the mother. Is it that the city itself is the mother and the children are the warriors? Or is it that the children are the warriors and the city and its mothers are seen as um, both involved in that image of the mother bird? Yeah, I guess I'm kind of mixing uh, mixing those two application the city itself as mother was what I was what I referred to directly but I, I, yeah I thought of that I thought of that rule in chapter 20 also that uh, so you have you have uh, fruitful citizens of the city that are uh, preserved mother uh, women and children who can who can carry on bearing and they're preserved but those who are fighting uh, are destroyed so yeah I was I was kind of mixing those two applications is it an unlawful mixture that's the question We'll find out in the next few verses, I suppose. <laughs> I was also uh, struck by the uh, by the imagery that we have in both the Old and New Testament of the Lord as being like a mother, a mother bird or a bird at least, hovering over the young. Uh, Deuteronomy thirty two eleven, the Lord describes Himself as a a bird that hovers over Israel in the wilderness. The Lord is an eagle carrying Israel through the wilderness, bearing Israel out of Egypt on eagles' wings. But in Deuteronomy 32, the Song of Moses, you have a variation on that image where the Lord becomes a protective mother. I don't think it says, I don't think it specifically says a mother bird, but a protective bird. Uh, and of course, Jesus picks up on that imagery at the end of Matthew 23 when he's talking about Jerusalem. And he uh, expresses his longing for Jerusalem to come under his wings to uh, accept his protection. Uh, there, he specifically compares himself to a mother hen, to a mother bird, to a hen who is uh, protecting her chicks. So, what if we could see some kind of allegories? We, we've seen in other in other cases in this part of Deuteronomy some kind of allegory of Israel's relationship to Yahweh. Uh, that Yahweh is the protective mother who uh, that seems to apply best to the Deut to the Matthew passage. If you think of Jesus as the mother uh, who is uh, seeking to protect the uh, chicks. Of course, the next thing that's going to happen is that the chicks are going to turn on the mother hen or the would-be mother hen and kill the mother hen. Uh, and then the chicks are going to be left to, uh, the chicks are going to be left desolate because they have no protector anymore. So um, Deuteronomy 22 seems to feed more directly into that than it does into the imagery of Deuteronomy 32. But uh, what do you think about that possibility that uh, there's a some kind of link to Yahweh's relationship to Israel? I like it, but I'm struggling to um to sort of make the pieces quite fit together exactly. Um, are you saying that it kind of um adds to Israel's condemnation in terms of kind of by um effectively they in the crucifixion took the mother along with the young insofar as the leaders kind of crucified their Messiah, and then their whole house was left to them desolate. Is is, is that? Kind of the yeah. idea, yeah, yeah. yeah they, 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 I mean, if 
if the typology works, then yeah, then the young chicks turn on the mother and, or, or you could say that Israel violates this because Jesus is the mother hen. And uh, instead of uh, leaving the mother hen, they, they take it and, and slaughter it. Right. Well, we'll leave that in the category of a, a big, maybe, or maybe not. Uh, let's go ahead. Let's go ahead before we, before we finish up, we'll do, we'll do verse eight, which I, I have claimed and everyone else is in full agreement with me that uh, verse eight is the conclusion of the sixth word section. This will be a clean break, and when we start um, the next episode, we'll be in the seventh word section. So um, this is a rule about prevention of bloodshed. Uh, It has to do with houses, uh, and the specific case is when you build a new house, uh, you have to put a guard against uh, a guardrail around the roof in order to prevent people from falling off. The assumption, of course, here is that the house has a flat top that would be used as an extra room. Uh, they're not talking about a uh, a sloped roof. Nobody is up on the sloped roof. And so if they're up and fall off, then <laughs> I suppose it's their own responsibility. But if they're on a, a flat roof and it's a it's a, a room that people inhabit, which would be the case in ancient the ancient world and in many places in the world today still, you have flat roofed houses, then you need to have some kind of protective barrier to prevent people from falling off. If you don't, then you're guilty of some kind of negligent uh, manslaughter, at least, manslaying, uh, and blood guilt comes on the house, I suppose it would be negligent uh, homicide. It wouldn't be just manslaughter because uh, the rule implies that you're responsible for protecting against somebody falling from your house. And so if you don't take those protective measures, then you are guilty of, then you, yeah, the blood comes the blood comes on you. So, but, but that, that's a... Uh, it's connected with the, uh, a commandment that's given in Exodus that has to do with uh, digging a pit. You cover a pit so that uh, a person or animal doesn't fall into the pit uh, and uh, and is harmed by that or killed by that. Uh, you have to take precautionary measures to if you're if you're setting up something that poses a danger, then you're required to set uh, to take precautionary measures to prevent somebody from being harmed. I was thinking over this case and some of the others. So I mean, this is now looking ahead slightly but you should not plow with an ox and a donkey together it's, it's like i mean i'm not an agriculturist but what why would you want to i mean it just strikes me as a really awkward um thing to do and then sort of thinking about this i, I can't imagine that um kind of one of the leading causes of death in israel was people falling off roofs or for that matter the other week when we were thinking about um axe heads flying off their handles and and finding heads to um, embed themselves in. And I was kind of thinking over it and and wondering if the fact that they kind of deal with pretty unlikely scenarios is meant to encourage you to kind of abstract them a bit more and to think about the principles rather than, I mean, if it was – a case that covered the majority of deaths, you might be happy to just to stick with that and say, well, the law doesn't have much else to say about fringe cases. It just deals with this kind of core case. But the fact that it, it does deal with these very fringe uh, cases and, and almost leaves more common cases un, unaddressed explicitly, I wonder if that's kind of meant to encourage us to think about them more in the abstract and and then apply 
the principles it, it sort of um it discourages you from just sort of sticking with the literal details i also wonder whether there's anything chiastic going on here because we had at the beginning of the um list of things for which a person could be excused from being sent out to war um actually you had the the fear first but then you have the um if someone has built a new house then if someone has planted a vineyard and not enjoyed its fruit which might connect with the bird's nest and the tree and then the woman and the man in marriage but i'm not sure but both have there are two cases of a man who's built a new house yeah i think i think there is a connection there the other connection uh, the larger chiasm that i was thinking of was uh, this verse reaching back to the beginning of the sixth word section which has to do with cities of refuge and where somebody who's brought guilt, uh, blood on the land, inadvertently can go and find refuge. Uh, and you know, James brought this up already, that you have this similar kind of strange mode of death in both cases. Uh, one is fl- death by flying accident, and the other is death by falling from roof. As as James said, I, yeah, it's hard to it's hard to imagine that this these are the main causes of death and the main things that need protection. But I th- yeah, I, I think your point is right, James. You kind of, I would put it this way, that you read you reason kind of analogically or analogously from these specific, very odd cases and try to uh, think about how that's providing some kind of insight to analogous system. And that, that involves a certain amount of abstraction, but you're looking for, you're looking for ways to apply uh, these to analogous uh, analogous situations. Which seems kind of odd, uh, in I guess in general. But I mean, if you if you think about the way that uh, modern law works, you have similar, very similar kinds of analogically analogical reasoning going on. You don't have statutes that cover every possible contingency. You can't have a statute that covers every possible contingency, and so you go with precedent that seems uh, more or less analogous to the situation that you're looking at. That, as as you said, James, that does involve a certain kind of abstraction of a more general principle from it. But uh, legal reasoning seems to be seems to involve this uh, uh, seems to involve this uh, inevitably. Uh, the odd thing about biblical law is that it take, seems to take the most marginal kinds of cases as the uh, as the ones from which you reason. And I think modern law would t- generally take the most common possible cases uh, and would make uh, would make. Uh, uh, try to try to more deductively reason out from there, but you're still you're still left with this kind of reasoning from analogy that I think is almost inevitable because you're you're looking at situations where the details can't possibly match the statute or the previous law or previous cases, and you're trying to figure out um, how how close it is to which case which previous case uh, that uh, that you want to apply. Yes, although while there's a disconnect then with modern law um comparing the bible to modern law it does seem quite similar to a lot of philosophical papers and the method of argument there you kind of start with these bizarre thought experiments and and you know what happens if i take the right and left cortex of my brain and put them into two different people you know which which one am i you know you 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 kind of start with these bizarre um scenarios in order to get a kind of the notion of what is a person um and it, it does seem kind of consistent with that method of argument at least 
Yeah, and I guess a, a more general point, I think, is that even though we think we live in a rationalistic kind of environment, and when we think of rationalistic, I think we're, we're thinking of kind of a logically deductive way of thinking is predominant. I don't think people can actually think that way. And I think we'd, uh, we're built to reason by analogy. We're symbolic creatures, and we're built to reason from one specific to another specific and try to find similarities and differences and tr try to figure out which similarities and differences are relevant to the particular decision we're trying to make. That seems to be just built into the way that human beings reason, whether it's in phil philosophical areas or in law, as we're talking about. That's the way that God created us to reason. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.